This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week's podcast is dedicated to Mark off of Tunbridge Wells, who posted a review on iTunes saying, I can't understand why this is so low in the chart. Well, me neither, Mark. But if more of you subscribed, reviewed and posted comments on iTunes, it should bump us up. You know what to do. This week's episode is largely a budget-free zone, but only because we're recording a budget special straight after we know what Philip Hammond has announced to the Commons, so look out for that. We still have plenty to talk about, though. Anne Ashworth, editor of the Times Supplements, Bricks and Mortar and Money, worries that we're not saving enough. Times columnist Jenny Russell worries about Donald Trump's latest madness. But first, Deputy Political Editor Sam Coates worries we're not ready for the coming storm. Cancel Easter, wave goodbye to weekends and strap yourself in with only Twitter and a copy of The Times for company, as the political roller coaster is once more leaving the station. Today is the last day of peace, but as by the time you listen to this, we'll have had the budget, the first group of a, a meeting of a group ironically dubbed Empire 2.0, a European summit, and within a fortnight... Article 50 triggered, market reaction, Nicola Sturgeon demanding new powers for an early referendum, uh, perhaps direct rule from London for Northern Ireland, and more emergency summits, and maybe even an election. Who cares if we can cope? I'm thrilled to be along for the ride. The question being asked in government is whether they can cope with everything that's about to hit them. Sam, this is one of the most striking things. It's since the EU referendum, and we all remember 2016 as being this great year of political shock and uh, terror, if you like. Um, but almost nothing happened after the point that Theresa May entered Downing Street in July. It's been mostly calm. She's done very little. She hasn't told us very much. The government has sort of glided along quite nicely. And people have said, oh, well, that means that Brexit's been a great success. Um, you know, we haven't seen the economic turmoil we expected. We haven't seen the political fallout that we expected either. Uh, but you think this has all just been building up and somebody's about to take the cork out, if that's the right metaphor absolutely what we've got is um uh an unbelievably tough time to do governing um about to hit full-on uh theresa may's unique style of governing um theresa may is somebody who is a deliberative politician and this has served her 
incredibly well. Publicly, she is thoughtful. She is quite calm. She is decisive. She is firm. But she takes her time over making decisions longer than anybody expects, and she holds back and doesn't rush things. She is about to enter a situation where she's got a lot of other things going on, from what's going on in Northern Ireland to a budget to uh, 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 to changes in the economy. But layered on top of that is Brexit. Brexit is going to require huge amounts of swift decisions to be made in an incredibly high stakes, high impact way. Um, and this will be the first taste of her ability to do rapid decision making. As far as I can tell, talking to people inside government, even now, uh, on the eve of triggering Article 50, there are lots and lots of very big decisions where people don't broadly know which way the government is heading. They haven't sorted out for certain what they're going to do about migration. They haven't really worked out how they're going to handle the money issue. Crikey, I hear there are even two versions of the Article 50 letter doing the rounds in private. A short one that doesn't tell you very much and a longer one that goes into a bit more detail and they can't decide which one they'll be triggering next week or the week after or whenever it comes probably after you're listening to this podcast. So I think broadly speaking they're going to have to get their skates on making decisions and start to govern in a way that they haven't before. Maybe they'll be fantastic at it. Maybe they won't but we're going to have to hang on tight. Anne, you, you had almost your head in your hands then as uh, Sam was listing the, the challenges that lie ahead. Well, I was about to go and cower in the corner and maybe <laughs> excuse myself. Um, but on behalf of everyone, anybody listening to this who feels really scared by what you've just said, what's the worst that can happen and what's the best outcome? So I think that in the end... You need end, to remember that Sam judges all these things. Worst and best is, is you know, best news. What, the worst thing that could happen for Sam is there's no news. <laughs> that would make me sad. Uh, <laughs> but look, I think there are lots of ways that you could judge it. But I'm going to set um, what I'd think of as the times test uh, for Brexit, which is in 10 years' time, how is, for instance, the economy doing? Are people feeling better? Is the economy doing well? Have we forged good trade links? Have we got a sensible balance? Does the country feel more at ease with itself um, uh, than not. So I think I think that's the test. I think that um, we will, as we always do, obsess about little minutiae about the the, the um, uh, about the path along the way. Um, and but I think in the end, really, uh, we will have succeeded if Britain is in the same or better place uh, in a decade's time. Now that means that we can't tell here, sitting on the ed- at the start of a fork in the road of, where there are many many different paths. We should go. Da- we could go down. Which path is the best? But there are clearly dangers. I think that one of the interesting questions we've all got to ask ourselves, uh, very honestly, right now, is whether or not people genuinely want to do uh, to leave the European Union and have a negotiated deal with the same organisation that we've just left. So we have some kind of comprehensive agreement about how we're going to treat each other after Brexit, be it on trade, be it on security, be it on, uh, uh, be it on other forms of cooperation, or whether we just want to say, look, we've left the European Union. We don't want to go from membership of the European Union to some kind of eu light arrangement that I know upsets uh, quite a lot of Brexiteers, worries some people in government, and is, might well be quite hard to sell because it involves big payments to uh, the countries that uh, members of the European Union. It means um, uh, a sort of slightly uh, sniffy arrangement where we actually, in fact, cede some of our sovereignty to um 
organisations that aren't called but look suspiciously like the European Court of Justice, and on and on and on. Do we want a complete break with everything that that means, basically two fingers up to our neighbours, but absolutely pulling ourselves out of what we had before, or some kind of halfway house? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know that answer to that question from polling yet. I, I don't think there's a settled view in the country. I certainly don't think there's a settled view in the Conservative Party, and you hear both arguments quite vociferously. Theresa May is going to go and try and get a big negotiated settlement, but the cost of it might prove too large, and I just don't know where this is going to end up. What interests me most in the short term is the cost of living question. We know that an awful lot of ordinary people should be feeling the pinch by now. We've had an effective devaluation of our currency since the EU referendum vote. Prices are going up. Economists are muttering darkly about this. But for the moment, people are not complaining about rising prices, about the cost of their holiday going up, about being able to book a less nice resort than they were they were used to. And I just wonder whether the feel good is that people feel that a decision was made about Brexit and they may be able to bear the pain. Or is it that the cost of living increases are currently being absorbed by the retailers, but when they finally succumb to that and start really raising prices, whether people will start to feel whether that Brexit was a bad idea? Isn't there also a fact that we've had a decade now of bad news, or whether it's you know mm. with uh, wages rising less than inflation, people have you know whether it's house prices up and down, the idea that the last six to nine months have been any different economically to a human being rather than to statisticians you know that's just the new norm that things are a bit of a struggle but you know the statistics show that you know particularly with unemployment up so high if people are moving in the jobs market that's not unemployment employment is high unemployment is low people are moving in the job market that's about the only way to get a decent uh, pay rise but so if people are doing that personal experience is different to what the the sort of statisticians figures show and indeed, there is some evidence, I don't know whether it's necessarily reliable, that house prices are doing better in places where people voted for Brexit because maybe they feel more confident or that may be the fact that the Remainers lived in expensive areas in London and the South East that have been hit by stamp duty and so they're feeling a little bit woebegone and a bit dismal about their prospects. And Jenny, there's a lot of talk, William Hague's talking about it, should there be, he thinks there should be a general election. Do you think there should be, and do you think there will be? I think if I were Theresa May, everything except the fact that I like not disturbing the surface of things and I like sticking to my word would incline me to call a general election. Because I've never seen a situation in which a governing party is more guaranteed to increase its majority than the situation she's in now. On the other hand, she's a person who likes to have a very good reason for whatever she does. She'd have to claim to the country that um, there was some necessity for an election when we all know that it would just be being done for party political advantage. And she has kept saying that she won't do it and she's a woman who likes to keep her word. I'm afraid I don't know what the answer to that one's going to be. And it it feels like the circumstances are going can only deteriorate. You sort of... The situation for her can only get worse, exactly. Once people start realising what Brexit means in terms of lower living standards and jobs leaving the country and dissension over the terms on which we go, I think she will be finding that the political climate is is not as positive in a couple of years as it is now. Mind you, there's no sign of Labour reviving, so she still might be in danger. I was about to say that um, the only way is up for Labour, but 
I don't, I don't know whether you can think that. I think a lot of people thought that after Ed Miliband lost the last election and they've been proved very wrong. He had a 35% strategy, which now seems <laughs> outlandishly great, optimistic for uh, the Labour Party. <laughs> What's there currently, Sam? 27 or 24 something? 24 or something. 24. It's, yeah. We'll see how that plays out. We'll obviously um, come back to all of this when we see if things are as dramatic as Sam predicts over the coming weeks. Now let's move on to Anne Ashworth and whether we're all saving enough for the future. It's ISIS season, that time when people rush to use their tax-free allowance before the end of the tax year. While some will put money aside, others who could and should be saving can barely tell you what an ISA even is. This worries me a great deal. After all, Everybody needs an emergency fund. And do these people not realise that the current system of state provision for the elderly is unlikely to exist even 20 years hence? There's a new drive to provide skills in schools that are essential for the workplace. What about making understanding money part of this? It's one of the most valuable lessons for the whole of life. So I suppose we should start with what is an ISA? It's an individual savings in a account. I've fallen asleep already, Anne. Yes, but you see, the problem is, is it may be cool to feign ignorance about money, but it's now tremendously risky because the state will not provide in the way that it has done. We can look at the current generation of pensioners and think old age doesn't look too bad, but they are the extraordinarily fortunate beneficiaries of a, of a very brief moment in pension provision when there were final salary guaranteed payouts from pension schemes, when the state pension has been not exactly generous but protected by the triple lock. That time is passing and we nobody who is working now can necessarily rely on that. Also, there are more threats to the pension tax reliefs, which mean that we won't be able to put so much money aside. So saving has never been so important. And people just need to be made to understand that. And, you know, on another issue, we know the link between financial problems and, and mental health problems. For all sorts of reasons, we should be teaching our children much more about money, how taxes work, the need to save, how the economy works, rather than leaving them rudderless as they come out of school and university, having to confront an ever more complex financial system. And do, do you, is this a role for government to... What, can, what more could the government do? Because, I mean, actually, George Osborne, I seem to remember, did quite a lot in terms of lifting the amount that you could put into an ISA. But, as you said, if I went outside and stood in London Bridge Station, there would be some people who would be able to tell me, chapter and verse, what an ISA is and how much they had invested in what funds. And other people would look at me saying, what earth are you talking about? And then there is another group of people who are hugely interested in money but feel that showing any knowledge of it is rather uncool. And so we have a number of problems because those people will go into old age without enough money. Have they not seen the life expectancy figures? Is it just me that really worries <laughs> about all this stuff? Because I do. Sam, do you think Philip Hammond is the man to make saving cool? <laughs> um, I think the truth is that uh, making saving cool costs money and he doesn't have any any, any money um, I think one of the 
you know, as it were, there are two types of saving. They're saving for the kind of medium term, and then they're saving in terms of pensions. Uh, I think that politicians are guilty of fiddling around with the pension system and making it progressively less generous, disincentivizing people from taking part in those kinds of schemes for years. So there's a problem with long-term saving. There's also been a problem with, sh- with medium-term saving that I don't really think is politicians' fault. Um, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a consequence of the financial crisis, which is ultra-low interest rates, uh, which we've now had for years and years and years and years. Um, and the consequence of that is that you just don't get any return if you put your money in the bank. And that means um, we have one of the striking features about the economy since the financial crash is how consumer spending is more or less held up. Since the Brexit referendum, consumer spending has done incredibly well. And that's powering our economy at the moment, people spending for now rather than putting it aside for later. Our economy relies on people doing that at the moment. If there is some great shift away from spending now to saving, it will be interesting to see the effect on that on that, that will feed through then into GDP and growth and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, and the wider health and uh, optimism of the economy. Because I think um, uh, there's a fi- people have a finite amount. There is has been a cost of living squeeze for years and years and years. Um, and if there was any shift, then I, I, I think we might start to feel it in terms of headline growth rates fairly fairly swiftly. And there's another big risk. Um, we've already seen loads of cutbacks to pension tax release for bosses. Now we can all say, ha, 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 rich men are losing their tax perks. <laughs> but the more people I talk to, the more I come to realise that if you... If the boss loses the incentive to be in the company pension scheme because he will be penalised by that, he loses interest in that company pension and fails to support it in the boardroom, talks about the, fails to talk about the need for better provision, and the people much lower down the corporate ladder lose out. So I think that we just need to seize this problem and recognise and be quite forthright with people that you will be on your own in old age start saving for it it was striking a couple of weeks ago we had david willits on the podcast and he was talking about intergenerational Mm. unfairness of young people versus the baby but he described himself as a baby boomer and the fact they've enjoyed the good life and young people and one of the things he really focused on was exactly that there were these um decent pensions enjoyed by people Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The end of their careers, there's not enough money in the pot for them to enjoy those pets. So younger workers are actually having their wages held down to top up those pots for a scheme that they will never be part of. So not only they're not saving for their own retirement in the same way, they're actually being penalised to, to, to make sure that people get pensions which actually were never really affordable. And we need to ask ourselves whether in 20 years' time uh, people will want to pay the kind of tax and national insurance that will be necessary to fund unfunded state pension liabilities, both the civil servants' pensions and the state pension, when they themselves will not receive that money. And I note within my son's generation a growing amount of resentment about the amount that it's going to cost them to give other and older generations a really comfortable life when they can't get on the housing ladder. So I think we've got a bit of a perfect storm arising here and we need to be candid about it. Now, someone who's got a mother-in-law who retired at 55 from the NHS, I'm not in any way going to comment on the gold-plated pensions that they might um, enjoy. So in terms of the politics, there's been a lot of talk lately about the uh, triple lock, um, which is where the state pension at the moment rises in line with inflation earnings earnings or 2% 2%. Uh, but there's a general feeling that's not going to survive past the 2020 election so I think it's fair to say that the Treasury have always been uh, unenthusiastic about this. Uh, it was a political promise. Uh, it was dreamt up by the Liberal Democrats, seized by George Osborne and David Cameron enthusiastically. They thought it would help uh, solidify uh, their support amongst uh, certain demographics in the general election. That was broadly successful. Uh, job done now. Uh, politics has changed. Uh, Prime Minister has changed. And it does look as if that commitment is coming off. There's a review of every single uh, ring-fenced area of spending in government and we are told behind the scenes, behind their hands, that of course the triple lock is one of those things uh, that is being looked at, i.e. lined up potentially uh, for um, uh, for the chop. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that the Treasury is particularly exercised about um, is the long-term projection of public finances and the pressures that they're going to come under. Every to About once a year, the Office for Budget Responsibility, that independent watchdog that looks at the short, medium and long-term fiscal health of this country comes back and points out that the population is growing, that the population is ageing and that all of this is going to require more social security spending, be it through health, be it through um, uh, social care, uh, uh, be it through uh, uh, safety net provision um, for our population and says, well, either we've got to run up more of a deficit or we've got to cut back on entitlements um, because, uh, as it stands, um, the bill is going to balloon. Those are the cho- the, the, the um, pressures facing the Treasury in the medium to long term. But at the moment, we can't really begin to tackle them because we've got to make sure we've got enough cash in the bank in case Brexit goes wrong or you need some pre-election sweeteners in 2019, 2020. Um, And so once again, you've got the spectre of politicians putting off till tomorrow decisions that really probably ought to be made today because there are shorter term pressures that they need to deal with now. Now, And as the money editor, I'm not going to ask you Jeremy Corbyn style to publish your... um, uh, tax return not that he did that very successfully either uh, but do you practice what you preach do you read or you do you also read what's in the money supplement and think oh i know i should be doing that but actually i'd quite like to go on holiday do you know 
I really do practice what、oh. I preach. I hate to say this because we get some of the most scary letters. We get letters from seventy-five-year-olds who's got who have got an interest-only mortgage that they will not be able to repay. If that doesn't put the fear of God into you, what will? <laughs>、yeah. Also,、um, I I like to see the service and the performance that is promised to me. As an individual, I think you know it's my mystery shopping. You road test what? Yeah, I, ro- I road test once on offer, but I'm going to probably put in a plug here. If、um, you've now learnt what an ISA means, and you think, oh, this is the year I'm going to use my allowance, we've got a great supplement coming up on March the twenty second in the paper that will set you on the right road. Well, Anne, you're clearly better than some financial experts. I can't help but remember、uh, there was a piece. By Paul Johnson, who is the revered head of the Institute for Fiscal Institute for Fiscal Studies,、uh, the body that we go to after every single awesome statement and budget,、um, who basically is the、uh, watchdog of the nation's finances. And in a little newspaper interview, that he, he revealed、uh, that his wife does not think that he is any good at managing the household、uh, and family finances. <laughs> and while he is able to tend the country's economy at、uh, sort of numbers very carefully,、um, she won't let him near any of the household finances because he's not very good at that. Jenny, this is quite a big problem, isn't it? People not. Thinking about the future, they just think about the now. Oh, absolutely! And I was just、um, discussing with Anne the fact that I've now reached the age where I've got friends around me who are about to retire, and many of them have had really interesting careers in culture, media, the arts. They've lived rather well. They haven't thought about the future. They kept on saying rather gaily, "Oh, I'll work till I'm eighty-two," but actually, they find themselves in an environment now where people don't want to keep employing them until they're eighty-two, and media jobs don't pay what they did. And I've got. Friends who are literally standing on the end edge of a financial precipice—they haven't got pensions, they've got tiny amounts of equity in their houses, and they have no idea how they're going to fund the next thirty years. Well, thank you all for that. Let's move on though now to、um, Jenny, and you are looking across the Atlantic and worrying: what can we do about Donald Trump? President Trump has created his biggest firestorm yet with his allegation that Obama wiretapped his communications during the election campaign. The problem isn't just the accusation. Is that the mainstream media have no idea how to present or handle statements like these from the president, which are either fact-free or outright lies? Our media runs on the assumption that what powerful people say will be broadly true, and that what can be argued about is interpretation or exaggeration. But that's no longer the case. We, the media, have got to start learning how to frame some presidential claims sceptically, or we'll become nothing more than tools in Trump's extremely dangerous propaganda machine. You know, I was struck when I was listening to one of the news reports of、uh, this. Is、uh, they've all sort of caveated with the president, who's provided no evidence for his claims. We've seen this quite a lot. That, that, because, obviously, because he's the president, and what he says carries weight and is reported as news, and almost by dint of being president, is reported as fact. And yet, there is no basis in fact for it, as far as we can tell. So how do we report on it? And then, if you do report that there is no basis of fact for it, he accuses journalists of peddling fake、bias. news. No, I was very struck both when he talked about、um, the size of his crowds during the inauguration, and then when he talked about there being massive voter fraud, and then again, most strikingly, when he accused Obama of wiretapping him. That although there are caveats in the news stories that follow, they're often quite a long way down, and the headlines all just present facts because nobody knows how else to do it. So they'll say. Um, 
President Trump has accused President Obama of wiretapping him or President Trump has demanded an investigation into the wiretapping of his communications by President Obama, which sounds as if it is a fact and all that Trump wants is somebody just to investigate the proven fact. Now, the problem with this is that people like us read news stories and we go down through all the caveats and we're intensely interested. A great many people just glance at a headline online or they just hear the BBC News saying it and they go away with the impression that that's the story. Whereas the story is we have a lunatic president who is perfectly prepared... (laughs) to repeat rumours as if they are fact and does not care about the truth. A cynical part of me wondered whether it was unconnected to him signing his second attempt at his travel ban, which has gone almost, certainly from UK perspective, almost overlooked by comparison. Well, I think this might be true, but I think we may be crediting Trump with more strategic (laughs) planning than um, I think he's capable of. He seems to be a man who's just full of irrational urges and rages and believes um, anything that the right-wing press say to him if it suits his purposes and doesn't have any feeling of responsibility for what he does and what he says. Sam, you're a man who likes to go around needling politicians in a professional capacity obviously. <laughs> what 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 can journalists do about a sort of a, 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 like nailing jelly to a wall dealing with donald trump i mean i i take a slightly different view from jenny i'm looking at today's front page of the times trump hits out at fbi in obama wiretap row jenny does that fail your test that's slightly more nuanced, but that's a few days in. I was particularly struck by what happened when the accusations first appeared, which were they were being reported on the BBC and in the Sunday Times and many, many newspapers, very straight. Because I, I, I raise that because over the weekend I heard a lot of, the, and I was struck just how out of their way a lot of uh, American news organisations went um, in order to do exactly what you're discussing. CNN, uh, the president offers, like the opening was offering no evidence. I think the Washington were... Post, I think uh, the New York Times, they all, their, um, their breaking news alerts um, went out of their way to, as it were, rubbish and undermine <laughs> the words of the, of the president before they even reported what they were. I actually gave the American news media a great deal of credit for doing exactly what I feel like you're asking them to do in a way that must be incredibly painful for um, news organisations because there is a what they are doing is they are showing much more overtly and explicitly their kind of uh, editorial sense when 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 doing this it's not um, the sort of customary slightly drier approach of, of reporting the words and then reporting the comment on the words they are going out there and proactively putting enormous question marks on what president obama has uh, has said I, I i think the problem is a different one i think it's not that 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 members of the public who supported trump aren't being told that there's a problem with what he's saying. I think they are choosing either not to believe it or choosing to ignore it. That is a different question. And that, at the moment, I don't really have any answer to at all. That is a different question. And it's a really, really important one. But I think you're right that the American media have picked up much faster than we have, that you have to frame this president's statements differently. We are not doing that in Britain. We're not doing it at the BBC. We're not doing it in most of the British newspapers, because we are accustomed to a political culture which isn't quite yet as nonsensical as the American one is becoming and I think we have to learn that scepticism I've been particularly struck by it with the BBC for instance I was um, talking to Reese 
Blakely last week, we did a live uh, debate about the special relationship. We had a video link with him in Washington. And he said he was he thought one of the mistakes that the US media had made was very early on in the campaign, fact-checking to death everything that Donald Trump had said. So he would say that he'd, he'd been against the Iraq war. And then they went back and found a sort of flippant, off-the-cuff remark he made once to a shock jock. And this was they were everything. They were constantly trying to prove that he was lying and he was hypocritical. When normal people listening to it would think well that's not what he meant or you know what you know they were so desperately trying to prove that he was lying or hypocritical that actually the value of pointing that out has been uh devalued so much that, that now even when they start their news bulletins by saying we do not think this is true the american public don't see it in that way and they they think it's all part of that spin and nonsense and, and th- yet objectively there are facts which are untrue when donald trump says that i had the greatest electoral victory ever it's completely nonsense when he says my crowds are bigger than anyone else it's nonsense when he says there are millions of illegals who voted in the american election and shouldn't have done he's offered no evidence everyone who has anything to do with elections republicans or democrats have said it isn't true and he's offered no evidence whatsoever for his claim that obama has wired up i mean the headline that Sam has just read out talks about Obama wiretap row as if there is a row possibly over the fact that Obama did some wiretapping. As far as we know, there was no wiretapping. And as President of the United States, Trump is in a unique position to offer evidence if there is any. He only needs to ask the FBI. Um. I wonder whether there isn't a certain group of American voters who are going to take Trump, whatever Trump says, literally absolutely believe it and they may now be outside the normal mainstream news system that they are going to believe their own peer group and they are going to believe their president whatever he says i think this is an should be an amazing moment for the press everywhere because i think we will have to relearn how we do our job in this totally new environment in with a president who we failed to take seriously when we were taking him literally at the beginning and now need to learn to take seriously and relearn what we do and how we report on these stories. And that you have the headline and a box with the facts beside it. One of the things I think that struck me is that, particularly in America, because the TV is also as partisan as newspapers, but the... You need to separate, is is the broadcast or the newspaper taking issue with Donald Trump on that because it's not true or because they don't like it? And to lots of voters making that distinction, you know, yes. if you do agree with Donald Trump on most stuff and therefore you don't like CNN because they're always being horrible to him, are you going to take any notice of him when they try to point out the difference between fact and fiction? Absolutely not. There are some people who are totally persuaded of his excellence in every single field of endeavour, that they will believe whatever Trump says. And they quite like, every time he seems to be more non-political, every time he he behaves in a way that we don't expect a president to behave, they like him more because he's not a member of the political classes that somehow they learnt to hate. So what's the answer? I think the answer isn't to just think of it as a Trump phenomenon, but to think of it as a as a much broader thing. I mean, you've still got more than 50% of Labour members supporting, uh, approving of Jeremy Corbyn, despite a series of what can only be described as pretty di- failing, pretty, pretty low level electoral hurdles, the Copeland by-election most recently. You just have this group of um, 
of, of voters who are resistant to arguments from the mainstream media who probably don't particularly engage that much with the sorts of things that we do. Um, I think we talk about it as, as, as our responsibility, but, you know, we at The Times and indeed the news media in general don't reach the whole population. Quite what we do about those that don't listen to newspapers, broadcasters and other, uh, other reputable news outlets, who knows? The most scary thing is that... Apparently, whenever you go to a big entrepreneur conference, they are told not to read the newspapers because it will just bring them down. <laughs> uh, now, so we've oh, got a whole time. series of issues that are facing our industry and how we cope with them will determine our future. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget that budget special podcast will arrive by magic if you subscribe on iTunes on your Android device. And so do sign up to my morning political email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, from Sam Coates, Jenny Russell, Anne Ashworth and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.